Hey there, it's Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR. Before we get into the next episode, I wanted to ask that you subscribe to the show. It'll help us get even more unique and interesting guests on the podcast and in turn continue to educate management teams and the growing ecosystem that creates value for fast-growing private and public companies. And while you're at it, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating. Very much appreciated. My view is it's almost always social. Putting companies together, putting people together, you get all the challenges that, that you could imagine a family having when you get down to it, right? You have to kind of learn what people want out of their careers and what they want from work. Success is more than just up and to the right numbers on a spreadsheet. In fact, it can be easy to forget that there's real people behind those numbers. So in addition to capital, mentoring the team is absolutely critical. So much of what any software company does is just rooted in the people. And having great people actually matters. Like it's a competitive advantage when you get right down to it, in my opinion. And I think from an integration perspective, you have to be very thoughtful about putting the right people in the right roles. Being a public company can be hard. Small missteps can have outsized consequences. I'm Tom Ryan, founder and CEO of ICR, and over the last 20 years, we've helped thousands of companies understand and navigate the stock market and the media. We'll demystify these and other increasingly complex stakeholder groups so you can focus on what you do best, building your company, and unlocking your true potential. This is Welcome to the Arena. Growth through M&A can be hit or miss, with studies showing that nearly 50% of all transactions fail to create value. Why? Well, one reason is that M&A can create a lot of uncertainty among employees, customers, and cultural issues are huge. Sometimes they're not easy to overcome. The challenge for professional investors then is to strike a balance between implementing changes that will lead to accelerated growth and preserving the brand and core values of the companies they acquire. Great investment partners are able to elevate these issues and sidestep the landmines with first-hand senior-level operators as part of the team. Russell Fleischer is one of those operators. He's a former three-time software industry CEO and a current general partner at Battery Ventures, a global technology-focused investment firm. Battery is currently investing their 13th family of funds capitalized at about $2 billion. At Battery, Russell is focused on new opportunities in the enterprise software sector, which are typically later stage transactions, including buyouts, roll-ups, and take privates. His experience as the former CEO of HiJump, a supply chain management software company, HealthVision, a healthcare IT provider, and Trison Group, a core banking application software provider, has allowed him to engage on a personal level with his portfolio company CEOs. He mentors them, coaches them, and puts them in a position to drive stakeholder value. Let's enter the arena with Russ Fleischer. I don't think I ever set out to go build a career in the software sector. It was a derivative of relationships and 
really my second job after graduate school ended up being in a software company where I was working for a CFO who I was connected to through a mutual friend. And then I would say it just kind of snowballed and that's where I've spent the vast majority of my career. But it was maybe a happy accident is the best way to describe it. One of the things I always like to ask people is who was a mentor and what are some of the lessons that that person taught you? So I've been really fortunate. I, I can point to many mentors along the way. The individual that gave me my first job as a CFO was probably one of the most informative for me, a guy named Jeremy Davis. And he and I met when I was a financial planning manager at a small software company in Atlanta called Sales Technologies. He was the CEO. And he really got me involved in lots of different things across the company that involved strategy, sales, you name it. He allowed me to participate. And, and that really gave me the sense that you could open the aperture a little bit. And down the line, he actually hired me again when he was up in Boston as the CEO of a, a software company there. And he thought I could be a CFO. So he gave me my first CFO job. And that relationship was really instrumental. He and I ultimately ended up working together three different times. And then eventually I was fortunate enough to have a different individual believe that I could be a CEO. And relationships have just been key for me across my whole career. People that I've had a chance to work with who believe that I could continue to step up and do more. It's amazing when someone has confidence in you. You're like, really? <laughs> That's amazing, right? I mean, but it really makes a huge difference. And, you know, all you can ask for is the opportunity. I think that's exactly right. I mean, it, no doubt in the quiet moments, you might wonder, what did that individual see in me? Why did they think I could do this? And then over time, you realize, of course, really well suited for it, comfortable, and you have enough runway behind you that you realize you're definitely capable of it and that there's more to go in front of you as well. So the people can make a big difference believing in you for sure. 100%. When was the first time you got exposed to like uh, outside professional capital? You know, did anything surprise you about the, re the requirements of, of having an outside investor? The first time I was deeply involved in private equity, if you will, was really my first CEO job at Trison Group. And I was working closely with the Golden Gate Capital team out of San Francisco. And I think because I had a finance background as a CFO in both public and private situations, Private equity was pretty natural for me, so I could kind of bridge the gap language-wise, if you will, between the operations of a business and um, you know the needs of a private equity firm. So I think for me that finance background was pretty critical, and I wouldn't say anything surprised me. I would just say it was a little bit of a different environment. It was closer knit. Um, you know, you didn't have all these outside constituents. It was one kind of captive player. And I learned a lot. It was another avenue that I really had an opportunity to learn a lot, especially when I was working with Golden Gate earlier in my career. You obviously were, were a CFO and a CEO three different times. How and why did you decide to join Battery? You know, what, what impresses you about the organization? So the journey to Battery, it wasn't anything that I ever set out to say, hey, I want to be a private equity investor. I have a long relationship with the firm. So I started working with them at Health Vision in 2007. So that was the second situation that I had an opportunity to lead a company with. So I was the, the CEO 
there from 2007 to 2010. And the partner that I was working with at Battery, Dave Tabers, uh, he and I had an opportunity to work together twice with me as an operator. So he also was the investor at Battery behind High Jump. And I eventually joined that company after we sold Health Vision. But I had this seven, eight-year run where I was working closely with the Battery team as an operator. And when we decided to exit High Jump, the, the team at Battery asked me if I ever consider coming on board as an investor. We had great experience working together. It was kind of an interesting decision point for me because I had, at that point in time, spent 25 years in the software industry as an operator. I didn't know if I could be a useful investor when you really distilled it. I had done most of my own M&A inside my businesses, though, so I had a lot of experience buying and integrating businesses. And I think that's what drew Battery to me also, is they had that experience side by side with me, so they kind of knew my value system and, and how I thought about stuff. So when they eventually asked after we sold the company, again, I talked to my wife a little bit. We, we thought about it and I said, hey, what's the worst thing that happens is I spend a year or two doing this and I'm terrible. And, you know, we part ways. And Highly seven likely. And a half years, seven and a half years <laughs> later, I'm still here on the investing side of the equation. So I really believe it's the last thing I'll do. I, I don't anticipate ever going back into an operational role and have absolutely enjoyed it. Um, but back to your original question, what was one of the things that drew me to it? It's the people. For me, it's really the people. There's so many talented folks inside a battery. There's this generation of younger, interesting, hungry people that have great intellect, great curiosity, and great skill sets. And I wanted to be able to give something back. Yep. And I felt like this was one of those rare situations where not only could I do interesting work day to day, but I could work with really talented, bright people day in, day out. So cool. We've touched on it, but what I love about your background is you've actually like run a company, you know, versus just like a financial guy that builds a company on a spreadsheet and everything always goes up and to the right. Um, it doesn't work that way. No, <laughs> no, no. As you know, uh, all too well, but like, what do you, what do you think you bring to your portfolio companies and the leadership teams there that maybe just a financial person can't bring? It's just what you're describing. It's experience. You know, I bring the notion that I've got the same scars that they're trying to work through today. So I've seen some of those movies and know how they end and what maybe to avoid and do differently so that you get the, you know, romantic comedy, happy ending at the wrap of it all. And I think that's something that the teams I work with really appreciate. It's not that I you know, and the decision maker. I don't tell them here's the answer, but I'll share the travels I've had and the different experiences I've had along the way that might actually be helpful to them as they're framing decisions. And one of the things that I always thought as an operator was the CEO spot was interesting. It was, I thought, very exciting and fun and you got to really shape the business how you wanted to. But at the same time, it's kind of a lonely job because there's not a ton of people you can sit and talk to about some of the big decisions because they might be impacting your team in real direct ways. So I always have had kind of this informal CEO support group, people that I've 
worked with over the years, I might pick up the phone and say, hey, I've got XYZ I'm dealing with. What do you think? And I end up serving that type of role for all my portfolio company CEOs. And I spend time talking to them, most of them once a week, you know, the agenda's theirs, what do they want to run through? And most of it is that type of stuff, is bouncing issues off of me that I may have experienced and maybe I'll provide some guidance and help to them on. Being a CEO can be lonely, but having an investor like Russ, who's been there, done that, gives management a terrific edge. I asked Russ what he sees as the biggest obstacle facing CEOs and management teams he works with, particularly when decisions have to be made quickly in a dynamic industry. I think people oftentimes are afraid to make changes quick enough. And whether that is figuring out how products need to evolve to meet the market needs, or probably more importantly, having the right people in the right slots to create value both for customers, the people working in the business day to day, and of course, investors. I think people oftentimes wait, they delay, they don't have the conviction to say, this isn't the person that can take us to the next level. They got us to where we are right now, but this role is evolving, the business is changing, it's scaling aggressively, and that individual may have just capped out. And it doesn't mean they don't have a role to still play in the business, but you might need to bring in some different horsepower. That's probably one of the biggest challenges that I think is almost universal across the various businesses that, that I participate in is just a hesitation to actually make those personnel decisions. And they're tough. You know, they're tough. It's like you have personal relationships and you're in the trenches together and you're building something and all of a sudden you, you outgrow the skill set. And I'm sure over the years I've been guilty of that myself. And that's maybe yeah. one of the reasons why, you know, I can oftentimes be helpful because here's the three times I really wish I had changed someone out. And when I eventually did, it was so obvious that it was the right decision. And I think having that perspective can be helpful. The other stuff tends to be more just blocking and tackling. One of the things I like to tell everyone I work with is don't be afraid to fail. And I think that's maybe a mistake people sometimes make is I want a perfect decision, not a good decision. And they wait too long. And what, what I've always told the people inside my companies and still tell people around the organization today inside batteries, don't be afraid to fail. The thing is, fail fast. Don't hang around and wallow if things didn't work out, but really take the time to do it right the next time. And I think that's kind of the whole learning process. It's fine to make mistakes. It's not fine, obviously, to make repeatedly the same mistake time and time again. So make sure you learn something from it. Yeah. We always talk about you can't steer a parked car. Like, let's do it. Let's get it going and figure it out. And then if you can't, you got to you gotta adjust on the fly. What does battery look for when evaluating an investment? How do you and the team like approach investments? What are you looking for? What stands out the most? What's impressive in, in a, like a growing company that needs a partner? We have a history of being a research-driven firm. So we spend a lot of time assessing markets and looking for interesting spaces that then we think we can find interesting companies. So for us, it all starts with product market fit for our companies. And then I think the next piece of the equation that's really important is just backing great teams, is helping teams put the right resources in place 
so they can scale the company day in, day out. But the, the market's really important. You can have a great company in a terrible market and it isn't going to necessarily go great. You can have a terrible company in a great market that might do well and you just kind of caught a break. But market really matters. And we try to pick winners in those different markets when you get right down to it. Obviously, tech in general has been such an incredible secular growth story over the last 50 years, whatever it is. Is there areas within software, within your expertise that you're kind of zeroed in on that you could share? For me, I've been a little bit of a horizontal investor because I've had a pretty varied career as far as the different companies I've worked in. So I've worked in ERP software when it was just general ledger and on a mainframe, right? I worked in what is today CRM when it was Salesforce automation. I've worked across core banking systems at CheckFree earlier in my career. I've you know spent time in workflow and infrastructure over the years. And as a result, I'm pretty open-minded in terms of the companies I actually invest in. And some of the areas I mentioned are places that I've actually made investments. So I've made investments in core banking. I've made investments in infrastructure. I've made investments in applications, software as well. And all of those areas are places as a firm we play in. I would say if you want to kind of think about it most generally, we do a lot of application software investing, and we've been thinking and looking at SaaS businesses really since the inception of SaaS on the back end of client-server technology. So one of the really interesting things I have found about Batter is we have this long experience set, you know, dating back 38 years now. So we've seen a lot of transition over the technology landscape, specifically within software. So, you know, we have the experience to look back and remember what mainframe software systems looked like and remember what, you know, porting from those systems the client server looked like and then the inevitable evolution of, of vertical application software in the SaaS environment and how that has changed the, the landscape and, and, and how software continues to be that much more important in the overall economy. So the aperture we have is pretty expansive on that front and I think it's something that serves us pretty well as investors. You know, when I think of tech, you always think, hey, you know, that's grounded in Northern California and with few exceptions, but that's changed. You know, it seems like everywhere is a booming tech hub and, and battery is all over the world. What are some of the more interesting places where companies are popping up or there's like a culture of innovation and, and tech that either surprised you or that would be uh, interesting to listeners? It's everywhere. It really is. It, it, Silicon Valley obviously is ground zero in many respects. It has lots of history and lots of innovation going on there today, and I'm sure will for the foreseeable future as well. But you can go to any city today, whether it is Kansas City, whether it is South Florida. New York City has a really active tech scene. I've investing in companies in Kinneybunk, Maine, if you can believe that. And one of the great things about software companies and tech in general, and it's been accentuated during this pandemic phase that we've all been experiencing, is 
many of these roles can exist anywhere. And then it's just a question of how do you form the connected tissue of your company to actually be efficient and effective with your, your customers so that you can build a good business. But my expectation is that you'll continue to see companies evolve in all corners of the country and, and the globe just because the barriers to innovation have really come down and the resources, the people that actually make this possible spread out. There's a period of time where they were concentrated more in Northern California, but it really doesn't matter where you go right now. I was looking at a business a couple of years ago that was in Omaha, Nebraska. Now, great spot for College World Series, but you don't really think about it as a hotbed of software innovation, right? And they're all over the place. And, and I think that's just going to become more pervasive as you go. If, if you were to actually peel apart geographically our private equity portfolio versus maybe our venture portfolio, you'll find the vast majority of our companies are actually in that sphere outside of Silicon Valley. So our more mature companies are strewn all over the world. You know, we've got a decent amount of activity in Europe. We have plenty of businesses, you know, that spread the gambit in the United States. So, you know, software's everywhere. And I think that will just become more and more pervasive as, as the years go on. Tech has had a sick run in the last decade, Russ. I don't have to tell you that. Tons of capital, high valuations, all that kind of stuff. As we sit here today, record high inflation, supply chain issues, geopolitical stuff, maybe some air coming out of risk assets. What's your thoughts on uh, what's happening today and how it relates to your job at Battery? So, you know, no doubt there's plenty of upheaval in the markets right now. And if you cycle back to the fall compared to today, there's been a reset in, in valuations across the software landscape. We'll see whether that holds over the long term or not. But it's definitely a different environment, uh, certainly in the public markets. One of the nice things for us, obviously, is we're not in the public markets. Sometimes our businesses obviously exit into IPOs. But we play in the private markets, and we have a long horizon as far as our in investment timeframes are. So while we're definitely cognizant of what's happening out there from a, a valuation perspective, we really work hard to find businesses that we think are going to accrete long-term value and that if we do the right things working with those teams, we'll have great outcomes. I am a little insulated from that because I just don't spend time in that high growth part of the market. You know, I do much more control investing, businesses that are established. They may have been around for 10 or even 20 or 30 years. And they need a partner that can help them in ways that if they remain standalone, they just might not be able to help themselves. So we oftentimes help our businesses with M&A programs. We provide capital that allows them to scale on an inorganic basis differently than they can just purely organically. And, and we can turn you know, a standalone business into something that might be three, four, five times what it otherwise would have been because of the landscape that they operate in and a bunch of logical combinations that may be available when we bring our capital to the table. So that probably allows us to be, I don't want to say disconnected from those public markets, but on our control investing side of the equation, it helps us a little bit. But no doubt, 
it's been a tricky market over the last six months, and it will be fascinating to see how that continues to develop in the next six to 12 to 18 and so on. Yeah, I mean, dislocation creates opportunity, but uh, I'm glad you brought up the M&A because uh, that's such a huge part of growth, particularly in a market that might be a little flat or going sideways or whatever. Um, in your experience doing M&A, uh, and we talked about some of the pitfalls of just scaling an organization to begin with. What are the biggest integration issues in that industry that trip people up that they don't get right? Because it's so critical. My view is it's almost always social. Putting companies together, putting people together, you get all the challenges that, that you could imagine a family having when you get down to it, right? Uh, you know, people have aspirations for themselves. They may have thought things were going to go a certain way. Then they're all of a sudden part of a different organization. The leadership is going to change and you have to kind of learn what people want out of their careers and what they want from work. And that's an important piece of the element because so much of what any software company does is just rooted in the people. And having great people actually matters. Like it's a competitive advantage when you get right down to it, in my opinion. And I think from an integration perspective, you have to be very thoughtful about putting the right people in the right roles. And if you want to have the sum of the parts truly be greater than just kind of the pieces, I think you have to find the best athletes and create greater opportunities for those people than they would have seen had those combinations not taken place. So that's one of the things that I always look for, and it's one of the things I encourage my teams to contemplate as they're considering M&A, which is, all right, how do you build an organization that's actually a combination of the two companies as opposed to making one company feel subservient to the other? Yeah, and um, maybe we don't use the word headcount like these are people, you know, like you see these press releases, like we can reduce headcount, you know, it, it's just like a ghastly choice of words when you're talking about bringing two groups of people together to like have a one plus one makes three, right? Well, and I think you hit on something really important there and it cycles back to one of your earlier thoughts around, you know, are you looking at businesses just through a spreadsheet or are you looking at them through the lens of the operations and the people. And I think my experiences as a CEO really taught me a lot about that. And I think it's important that the team who's leading an organization sits down and really listens to the people in the organization and looks for situations where they can understand why certain processes are the way they are, why certain relationships with customers look like they do, and why structure may look like it does. And then after spending some time listening, figure out what the right go-forward path actually is, as opposed to coming in with a bunch of preconceptions and saying, look, it's this way, this is the answer, and you know, you're know you either on board or go find something new to do. And I, I think that makes a world of difference in, in those situations, and it humanizes it as well so that you're not just talking about headcount and you're at a more personal level kind of engaging with the business and figuring out what the right path forward actually is. The success of any company starts with its people. Investing in and developing them creates a powerful engine that drives a brand and creates untold opportunity for growth. 
At Welcome to the Arena, we're working really hard to bring you exciting guests and great content. If you found this episode insightful, subscribe to the show on your podcast app and leave us a five-star rating. The more the show grows, the more interesting voices we can have on the podcast. And in turn, that should demystify a lot of the stakeholders around public companies and soon-to-be public companies. Thanks for listening. One more shout out to Russ for being on the podcast today and sharing his insights. He and his team at Battery are doing great work, not only generating returns, but building great companies. They're focused on such an exciting and dynamic space. It will certainly be fun to watch their progress over the coming years. This is Tom Ryan, and we'll see you next time back in the arena. References to specific stocks are not intended to be recommendations for specific trading behavior. Comments presented on this podcast are intended for informational and educational purposes only, and do not represent opinions or recommendations on whether to buy, sell, or hold shares of a particular stock. All investors are advised to conduct their own independent research into individual stocks before making a trading decision. In addition, investors are advised that past stock performance is no guarantee of future price performance.